If you'll join me, please, in the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther, chapter 2. For me personally, this has proven to be a difficult study. It's taken far more time than I expected to prepare each lesson than it usually did for Wednesday night. And I just want to say how much I appreciate the kind words of encouragement through this series that you've offered me. It means a lot to know that at least some of you are at least pretending you're getting something out of it. Amen. And I know some are enjoying it so far, but typically what you'll find is this book is taught through very quickly. I've seen it taught through the entire book in one hour. And I've seen it broken into two sermons of five chapters each. Every now and then you'll see somebody do chapter a a, a night. And for my track record, we are moving rather quickly as well. (laughs) And uh, that was a little too much laughter there. (laughs) We are now in our eighth week, and we're almost halfway through the second chapter. So for us, that's really moving. And I guess my point is, I know that this series has been delivered differently than all the other series I've done. And perhaps it should be different because this book is so different. I think for me it's different because I like preaching points. And this is this reads almost like a short story. And there are some familiar verses that are very preachable, but anyway, it's just been different. That's all I'm saying. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your encouragement. We're going to get through this thing. And I'm actually learning a lot because I have never done a verse-by-verse through this. So with that, let's begin tonight. Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, who Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her the things for her purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house." And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Amen. Now last week we covered the rest of verse 7 through verse 10. Remember that Ahasuerus had approved a plan to seek for a new queen by gathering out of all of his 127 provinces fair young virgins. With this being the only requirement, 
the case can be made that this further proves that this man's wealth and power exceeded all. Typically, marriages of this sort in those days would be made to expand dominion or strengthen alliances or things like that, but that's not the case here. The only requirement was good-looking, young, and a virgin. It didn't matter if she was poor. It didn't matter if she was of nobility. It didn't matter which province she was from. This is simply a matter of the king's carnal desires being fulfilled. And how sad this is how he chooses to use his power and authority within the empire. We covered last week that the Hebrew language lets us know this is not a voluntary event, although many teach it that way. This is actually a case where these young ladies are being round up against their will. They're seeking for fair young virgins. They're not asking. And so they are being taken out of their homes, palace for the rest of their lives, never to see their homeland again. Only one out of all that were there, and there were likely one, would be chosen as queen. The rest would have to live out their days as the king's concubines. They would never be allowed to marry, and they would likely never have a family So what we see here is a very sad picture unfolding before us. This is not a fairy tale story. This is not her entering a contest in hopes that she's got the golden ticket. Did I just make a reference to that stupid movie? I hate that movie. hate it. This is not her submitting or hoping she has a lottery ticket. Well... It's better than that Oompa Loompa. Where am I at? This is a very serious thing. Esther, when she's taken, she knows her purity is going to be taken from her against her will. And she's going to live out the rest of her days somewhere in the palace grounds, whether she's the queen or living in the the harem. The, the place of the women. Maybe the, invent, the events in your life haven't always gone according to your wishes. Sometimes God's providence isn't as elegant as we would like. But when we review our life, even through all the bad decisions we've made, in God's providence we can see how He has brought us to this place right here tonight. We haven't always been wise, even when we're still guiding us. And you're here tonight, not by accident. Even those of you who may be lost, you're under God's providence tonight. You're here for a purpose. Can you imagine the emotions that Mordecai and Esther are going through? While God knows the end from the beginning, they don't. They have no idea of Haman's plot to come to exterminate the Jews. They have no idea that she's going to be chosen as queen for such a time as this. They don't know how God is working behind the scenes. In verse 9, we saw how Esther 
from the very beginning of this process was already receiving preferential treatment by obtaining kindness from Haggai, he gave her the best place within the house of the women. And so God is already moving behind the scene. He's working in the hearts of men. And He puts it upon the heart of Haggai to give her this best place. And really, if you will, put her into the front, if I can put it that way. She's already getting preferential treatment. He sees something about her that He he makes this move. And remember, God can move in the heart of a king. He can turn a heart like He turns a river. And He moves in the heart of Haggai. In verse 10, we saw how Mordecai had charged Esther not to reveal her nationality. And the way this reads, I didn't really pick up on this until I was reading it tonight. I mentioned how he tells her not to show, reveal her nationality because he's concerned it's going to hinder her in some way. And we'll talk about that in just a second. He's probably right in thinking that. But... When you read this, it, it, it talks about this preferential treatment in verse 9, and then immediately it says, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. makes me wonder if perhaps that's exactly what's happening, that she is getting preferential treatment. They don't know her nationality. It's being concealed. And let me not get ahead of myself here. But Mordecai here, his thinking is very pragmatic, which is really contrary to faith. Pragmatism doesn't mix well with faith. Mordecai, he's guided by his own practical considerations of the situation rather than through faith. Now, I said last week that once her nationality was revealed, many believe it would have revealed her religion. And that's ultimately what the problem would have been because remember in Esther chapter 3, And verse 8, it says, And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them or to allow them to be in their empire." So the case can be made that, we're we're still recapping by the way, but the case can be made that when Mordecai refused to admit his nationality, refused to admit being a Jew, that he was also in part denying his God. Because it was known there was a people that were different. They had different laws. They observed things different. And and I think that point probably has merit. But remember that this is what happens when a people are outside of God's will. You typically don't brag about your faith when you're living outside of God's will. Because at least you have enough sense to know I don't want to embarrass my God. You typically conceal your Christianity. It also would have been out of God's will for her to marry a pagan man. He's a worshiper of false gods that went against God's law. God was and God still is against being unequally yoked. That's with non-believers. Ultimately though, what we see here, and we have to keep hammering this point because it's the point of the book. Ultimately what we see here is God's providence at work in her nationality being concealed. Because God's going to use that later to get wicked Haman destroyed. Because Haman 
would never plot to destroy the Jews had he known that the king's wife is a Jew. Right? That doesn't make sense. So God in His providence is allowing this to be concealed at this time. And I ended last week by emphasizing that what we are watching unfold here is people outside of God's will. And so I hope you're in God's will tonight. If you're not, you need to, you need to get into God's will. With that recap out of the way, let's move on to verse 11. And Mordecai, I walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now, I've mentioned this in a previous study, but we see that Mordecai, though they are in exile, he must have some position within the palace. In verse 5, we read that Mordecai was in the palace in Shushan. Remember, Nehemiah, he was in the palace as a cupbearer. We don't know the position that Mordecai has, but in verse 21, we'll find out that Mordecai is found sitting in the king's gate, which is a much higher position typically. It could just be he's a doorkeeper of some sort, something more, um, what's the word, menial? Is that a bad word or is that a good word? Thank you, Should. It could just be as something more menial like a doorkeeper. It could be that he's in some position of prominence in the king's court. Some believe that Mordecai must have had some sort of higher position because we'll see in the next chapter when he refuses to bow before Haman, Haman doesn't have him taken out. Which at Haman's position, it would seem like he would have all the authority to do that. And so some people say, well, he must not have been just a normal servant, but that he probably had a higher position because Haman doesn't just have him put to death right away. Interesting thought. No matter what position he held, it's clear that he had become trusted and he had made some friendships within the king's palace, probably some friendships with the eunuchs because he's walking before the court of the women's house. He's walking daily there. I mentioned before, some have speculated that perhaps he was a eunuch himself to have such access. But I don't know. And I, I lean towards he wasn't. Whatever the case, he's, he's walking before the house of the women daily without examination, without suspicion, and he's even able to obtain information. And you have to understand that this court of the women was an impregnable, untouchable sanctuary. Nobody could just walk up and be like, hey, what's up, ladies? You could not go into the house of the women. It was, it was forbidden. And it was so secretive that from the ancient world there exist no known accurate historical accounts of what life was actually like inside of one of these harems. And, and that's an Arabic word which, which means secluded or forbidden. They were so secretive that it is said, even if you were standing right outside the walls of the court of the women here, that it'd be no different than if you lived at the outer edges of the empire over a thousand miles away. Wouldn't matter. You're not getting any information. Didn't matter if you were right there. Didn't matter if you were a thousand miles away. That's how secretive uh, this place was. The treasury of Scripture knowledge states that it was a crime to inquire what passes within their walls. And yet, here's Mordecai passing every day. He's obtaining information. 
He's getting insider information. He's finding out how Esther is doing. And again, we see how God is at work behind the scenes. This should not have been allowed to happen. And yet here he is. He's learning of Esther's welfare. Now there's two ways one can look at Mordecai's actions here in verse 11. I'll mention both of them. You can decide for yourself which one you want to hang your hat on. And both may be right, or at least have merit. One thought is, here's a man who's a nervous wreck. He's a man who's worried sick. He's a man who's maybe even frightened about what lies in store. And so he has to come every day to see how Esther is faring because he can't find peace and he can't find rest through this circumstance, all because he's outside of God's will. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, be careful for nothing. You know what that means? Don't worry. Don't worry. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But before we drop the hammer, or Mordecai, so hard with that angle, just imagine if this was your daughter, rounded up against her will, about to be used by this man, I think you would be interested in her welfare as well. I believe I would be checking every day. Which leads to the second thought. This is the most prominent opinion. That what we have here in verse 11 is the picture of a loving father who's concerned for the girl he has raised as his own daughter. When it says to know how Esther did, that Hebrew word for did is shalom, safety, peace. It's not just, hey, how's Esther doing? Is is she safe? Is she well? Is she at peace? How is her welfare? And we see he was checking every day to see what should become of her. Had she been before the king yet? Did it go well or not? And I think every parent in here can relate to the concern that he has for his adopted daughter. Jacob sent his son Joseph to check on his brethren who were out feeding the flock in Shechem. And he told Joseph, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and bring me word again. Jesse sent his son David to deliver food to his brethren who were in the midst of a 40-day standoff with the Philistines. And he told David, Look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge, or Bring something back that I know that they're doing okay. Paul told Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. If you have children, you need to be a part of their life. And I'm afraid in this day and age in which we live, so often parents are content to allow their children just to have unrestricted access and time on all the electronic devices And we lose that interaction personally with our children. You need to be involved in their life. We really don't have many years of productive shaping. By the time they're old enough to understand and by the time they start getting a chip on their shoulder because they're teenagers, you've got a small window there of malleability where you can shape and form and and pour into them some truth. And in Mordecai's case, it's likely that she had been ripped away before her time. We don't know her age, but 
She may very well just be a teenager. Maybe they both weren't ready for that day. I don't know if any parent really is ready. I know Adrian's crying because Sydney and Grant are moving to Puerto Rico. You did very good tonight. I'm, I'm usually good at making her cry in my prayers, but it didn't work tonight. Yeah, but when you said strong just now, I heard a little crackling right there. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> wow. I'm going to let that one go because I need some food tonight. I haven't eaten. <laughs> now, if you have those in your life who desire to know how you are doing, be thankful. Amen. Some children I know, they grow tired of their parents checking on them. I remember being in that camp once. And boy, am I thankful now. What a blessing to see loving parents who want to know how their children are faring, and vice versa. Some people hate it when people in the church or the pastor checks in on them. But you shouldn't despise people caring for you. And I'm saying this point for my sake because I'm the one that hates people checking on me. I'm always the guy that's like, they're just being nosy. Some people are actually very genuine. I've had to learn this the hard way. We ought to have love for our neighbor, especially those of the household of faith. We ought to desire to know how they are doing and what should become of them when they're away from us. And really, our concern and love for others is a demonstration of our love of God. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. John 13, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. The fact is, the letters in our New Testament are before us today because somebody cared enough to see how another was faring. They stayed in touch. They wanted to know how they were doing and what had become of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we should have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. 1 Thessalonians 3.6 But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, and we also to see you. 2 Timothy 1.3-4 I thank God, whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. I want to take this little section here and just encourage you to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life when He leads you to reach out to somebody, to check on somebody, to write a letter or to give some word of encouragement. Maybe make a visit. Maybe have a meal together. 
Obey the Holy Spirit's leading. That may be the very thing that keeps them going in their time of need, needs that you may not even be aware of. Just be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Don't assume that you're going to be an inconvenience. That's one of my faults. I, I don't want to put people out. I always say that to my wife and Jess when she's, what do you want for lunch? Well, I just don't want to put you out. <laughs> Actually, I do. Okay. But I don't like doing that with other people. It's okay with my wife. You see how she treats me publicly. And, and so you need to be obedient to that. Don't assume that you're going to inconvenience. Don't think, well, they really don't want to hear from me. And I know that I'm not at liberty to share all that has been shared with me, but I can tell you tonight, there are those here in our own church body that just need a word of encouragement. I want to tell you, people are hurting. Physical ailments, financial hardships, marriage difficulties, rebellious children, seasons of depression, times of discouragement, deep valleys, troubled waters, spiritual battles, and just the day-to-day storms of life that we all go through. And it's your encouragement sometimes that will make the difference. Just check in and see how they're doing. Remind them that they are loved. I believe that can go a long way. Why am I telling you all this? Because I cannot do it on my own as a pastor. It's too much for one man. If you tend to sit in the same areas and you notice somebody's missing, help me out. Hey, we missed you Sunday. Missed you Wednesday night at prayer. How you doing? I'm not saying to, you know, be annoying. But, but help a brother out. Amen. All right. Don't be a, di- a, a busybody. Nobody likes that. Just be loving. Early on in my pastorate, it was probably a less than a year in, I felt like I wanted to give up. And the reasons are not necessary tonight, but I was sitting in my chair, and I was just weeping. It might have even been a Sunday morning, I can't remember, and I just did not want to come to church, except to say, I'm out of here. And as I sat there and I was weeping, at just the right time, a man who had no idea what I was going through. Pastor Robertson in Buffalo, Wyoming, sent a text at that moment, and he was giving a, a charge, if you will, about how God stores our tears in bottles. And the rest of what he said it just encouraged me to say, okay, I need to keep going. Sometimes your words of encouragement is what's going to help somebody else keep going another day whether you know the details or not. I could give you story after story. I keep them in my desk of cards that have come in at just the right time. They didn't know. I get phone calls from somebody. I can remember getting a phone call from Pastor Harold Holder once. Didn't have a clue what was going on in my life. And he said, I just felt like the Holy Spirit telling me to pick up the phone and call you. Is everything okay? And I said, no. When the Holy Spirit prompts you, you need to be obedient to that. I'll bet you, we're not given this, I'm making an assumption here that Esther knew Mordecai was checking in on her. 
But I'll bet you it meant a lot to her inside the walls of that palace knowing that there was a man on the outside who cared about her to check in every day. Keep her going. Knowing that she was heading, headed for a scary event in her life. I doubt that they ever got to see each other. I would imagine he would have had to have communicated with the eunuchs. Mordecai here, he's a loving father who wants to know how his adopted daughter is faring. And what a blessing it must have been to both of them, even in their limited capacity, to try to stay in touch in some way. Some of you will remember the days before internet and cell phones and social media. When we went to Korea, we didn't have those things. And I remember when I would, my wife eventually came over, but when I called her before she came over, we had to use those stupid old phones where you had to say, love you over. It's very romantic. (laughs) Miss you over. Even in that limited capacity, just being able to communicate. And we, we need to take advantage of the, of the blessings we have technologically today, but nothing will do more than human contact. I want to tell you tonight that in God, we have a loving Father who doesn't have to wonder how we are doing. Amen. God knows every detail about us. He knows our name. He knows where you're at tonight. He knows the hairs, the number of hairs on your head. You don't ever have to worry whether or not your heavenly Father is concerned about your welfare. He cares so much about you that He sent His only begotten Son to bleed and die for you. And since He did that, you can rest assured He cares about you even after salvation. He has your best interest in mind. God knows when a sparrow hits the ground. He knows your needs and you can trust His provision. Therefore, Jesus said in Luke 12, 22-32, Take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toll not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast in the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O ye of little faith? Seek not what ye shall eat and what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth ye have needs of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's human nature to be worried. But it's not to be part of our spiritual nature. In fact, it can't be. The Spirit's perfect. 
We have to learn to die to our carnal flesh, our old nature. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit and to trust God at all times. What are we going to do now that gas prices are almost $5 a gallon and there's all this talk about food shortages and all the rest? Take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. He knows. Are you a child of God? He knows. He knows how much you need. I've never missed a meal because I was broke. He takes care of me. Amen. I think in America we lose sight of this because we got it so good. Oh my goodness, we might have to cut back on the groceries. It ain't going to hurt you none. Jeremiah 29, 11, you know it well. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Just let God be the God of your life. He has a plan for you. We can trust how He's going to fulfill it. Mordecai, he has raised Esther and now it's time that he place his trust in God's providence as she is now being forced out into the world. And there comes a point when we have to do the same with our children no matter how painful that may be at times. They don't always end up in the best of circumstances. They don't always end up in the circumstances that we would have chosen for them. They won't always make the decisions we want them to make. There comes a point when they have to do their part as they mature. We understand that. But there comes a point when we have to learn to just trust God knowing that He can do a better job with them than we can. So do all you can while you have them. Psalm 127.3 Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is His reward. They belong to God. He opens the womb. He forms them. He brings them into this world. And sometimes, circumstances can be so far out of our control, like they are here for Mordecai and Esther, that all we can do is let go and let God. You know what it says in the previous verse there in Psalm 127? It is vain for you to rise up early to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows, for so He giveth His beloved sleep. God's Word tells us that it does you no good to worry yourself to death. That's what worrying will do. It does no good to rise up early just so you can wring your hands together. It does you no good to stay up late in painful sorrow, worrying all the time. Because verse 1 of that same psalm says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Without the Lord, our labor is meaningless. It's empty. But when we possess the peace that our Lord is intimately involved in our life, in all areas of our life, then all worrying will cease. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, we're not given enough information here to know whether Mordecai was worried or not. We don't know if he's pacing back and forth, if he's in turmoil, but we can be sure that he cares deeply about his adopted daughter as a loving father. 
And in a book where God seems to be hidden, we ought to look for Him a little more intently. And in this, we can make the application to our Heavenly Father. He wants to hear from us every day. Yes, He knows our needs. He knows our whereabouts. He knows of our welfare. But He wants daily communion with you. As God's children, we never have to worry if He cares. We don't have to wonder if He's watching over us. He is. He's checking in on us. But are we allowing Him that access? Maybe God has been trying to check in on you every day. But you've shut Him out of your life. I want you to know tonight He stands ready. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. So are you in daily fellowship with God? He died for you to make that a reality. Do you trust that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? What a picture of God we have here in verse 11. Let's pray.